G'day, this is an abridged version of the episode that you can hear in full by signing up at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. Enjoy the freebie. G'day, humans. Welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. And what idea is more dangerous in contemporary society than the idea that booze, alcohol, actually does nothing for you and all the things that you think it's doing for you are functions of the fact that you're mildly addicted to alcohol. As a general rule, not for everybody. Some people have one glass of champagne a month. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you, who has considerably more than that. Maybe. One of the questions that I get asked the most on our Ask Me Anythings is why I don't drink and how I quit. And I don't think I can do justice to that question in five minutes amid other questions on an Ask Me Anything show, so I thought I would dedicate an entire episode to it, uh, in case you're interested, in case you think maybe you drink a bit too much, or maybe you drink just the right amount, but you wonder what it would be like to quit. Maybe you've tried to quit in the past, and you've white-knuckled it through a month off, and then you've just blissfully and blessedly gone back to booze on the very first of the next month, and thought, ah, my old friend. I no longer have to deal with life without you. Some background. As long as I can remember, I loved drinking. I never classified myself as an alcoholic. I'm not sure that those terms are particularly helpful unless you're someone who has hit rock bottom and needs that identity in order to clamber your way out of a hole. I was never quite there. It was just one of those things that you did. I mean... My grandfather, or my my maternal grandfather, was an alcoholic who I didn't know, and my family are of Irish, English, Australian, New Zealand descent, and drinking is just woven into the fabric of life. You get home, you pour a glass of wine, you have another one before dinner, maybe you have a whiskey after dinner. You know, alcohol was just around. And neither of my parents are heavy drinkers, but they drank, they were daily drinkers. And at school, we drank to excess as one does in one's teens. But I found that my drinking was just a permanent backdrop to relaxation in my life. Throughout my 20s and most of my 30s, I would come home, I'd look at the clock, I'd feel a sense of relief when it was after 5pm. Once I was living in New York City, where I've spent the majority of my professional adult life, that is a town that, depending on what circles you roam in, is soaked in booze, especially the gay community in New York City, where boozy brunches and cocktail hours and happy hours are the currency of the community. They're how you lubricate social gatherings. And being an Australian, it's woven into the fabric of our lives here. It certainly was. I mean, I I think there's something of a change, but certainly 20 years ago, it was inconceivable that you would go out to a bar and drink a non-alcoholic beer or be off the the booze. It's, It's how you connect. And there came a point at which I thought, is this really something that I'm doing because it's giving me a lot of benefits? I guess, let me back up. At the time, I thought that it was giving me lots of benefits, but I also thought that it had downsides. And I thought that the downsides were that I found it hard to quit. At any time, I feel like I'm being bossed around or being puppeteered by some other force, some other phenomenon. I resent it. I'm just a ferociously independent person. I don't like being told what to do, even if the person who I'm being told 
uh, by is myself, or rather some little addictive characteristic or behavior inside my myself. And so I'd thought that this was something that I might want to want to experiment with dealing with at some point. But I thought that the the losses of not drinking would be just too high. I mean, how would you celebrate with friends? How would you relax? How would you make yourself feel like you're getting a reward? How would you celebrate? What would console you in the dark times and then reaffirm the good times? It seemed like there would be a huge loss for not drinking. Now, it's been about four years, I think. Three years? Four years? I mean, I'm not being an AA person. I'm not, like, counting the days. And it doesn't feel like I'm just trying to get through the day without a drink at all. I have absolutely no desire for alcohol. So how did I get to that place and what is this strange universe like? To be honest, the main switch in my thinking came from the Alan Carr Company, not the English comic, but the bloke whose little books you might have seen in airport bookstores to help people give up smoking. It's called Alan Carr's Easy Way. Now, it's not immediately easy. It's varyingly easy for various, depending on who you are. Some people read his easy way to quit smoking and they never have another cigarette again. Other people need to go to one of the seminars that they, that this organization runs. Uh, But they've expanded that empire from smoking to drinking and overeating and drug addiction. And this organization is a company that has a completely different outlook on how you address addiction than the mainstream medical establishment does and than 12-step programs do. And the basic philosophy is that there's no point in talking about all the reasons why you shouldn't be taking the drug that you're taking, whether that drug is nicotine or alcohol, sugar or meth. We We all know the reasons why we shouldn't be taking those things. If we were amenable to rational persuasion then we probably wouldn't be drinking as much as we do in the first place. So instead, the Alan Carr philosophy is to look at the reasons why you think you do do it and really pay attention to what the experience is of ingesting this substance and notice how much of it actually is only feeling good because it's topping you back up to a level, a sensation of normality that is caused by the dip that is caused by being addicted to the drug. Does that make any sense? Use the analogy of a really hard drug, which might make it easier to see. The heroin junkie sinks the needle into their arm and feels like, ah, now I can cope. But to the person who's not addicted to heroin, it's obvious that the injecting of the needle is the thing that's causing the problem. The problem wasn't that the person didn't have enough heroin in their system. The problem is that the person habitually uses heroin and needs to then use heroin to to get out of the hole of feeling so terrible, the hole that taking heroin in the first place caused. You can see this maybe more clearly with nicotine than with alcohol. 
you know, the smoker stands there puffing on a cigarette and non-smokers don't walk past going, gee, I wish I could have the high that that person's getting from the cigarette. It's obvious to the non-smoker that the good feeling that the smoker is getting by ingesting nicotine is just a way of getting them back up to a state of normality that the non-smoker enjoys all the time. The reason the smoker was feeling itchy and irritable and cranky and like they needed a cigarette was because they're a smoker because they go through their lives ingesting nicotine. And when that nicotine level gets too low, they need to top themselves back up. Now, the analogy to alcohol is not perfect, because unlike nicotine, alcohol actually does do something to you, right? It is an anesthetic. It is a disinhibitor. It influences your consciousness, changes your state of mind to a degree that nicotine certainly doesn't, and not to a degree that heroin does. But the idea here is that the principle is sort of the same. That if you actually pay close attention to what it's like to start getting drunk, it's not actually objectively that pleasant. It's pleasant because you're someone who does it a lot. And therefore, you've coded all of these biological reasons why your body rejects being sober and all of these psychological associations that you have between drinking and having a good time or relaxing. So just starting with the big psychological monster, I suppose, that resides inside our head, which is shaped by culture, shaped by advertising, shaped by our own past experiences. What I started to notice when I paid attention, and I did a seminar in London with Alan Carr's company, that helped me open my eyes to this, I got woke, man, I got so booze woke, was you pay close attention to the experience of getting drunk and you notice that the reason why it feels good, one reason why it feels good, is that it has historically piggybacked on experiences in your life that were otherwise independently good. Like when you're socialising with friends, You socialise with friends, you have this mnemonic sort of memory marker, this association between conviviality, friendship, warmth, relaxation, good chats and booze. You do that over and over and over and over again and you throw into the mix the times when you're feeling lonely and sad and the booze gives you an opportunity to wind down or to feel less anxious and the times when you're celebrating and the booze gives you an opportunity, a kind of a somatic marker to say, this is a celebration. So we're having a beer or a glass of wine or a gin and tonic or a glass of champagne. And you realize that booze is doing a shit ton of piggybacking here. It's piggybacking on experiences that would be fun without it. And we know this to be true even if you don't spend a lot of time having a lot of fun without booze yourself because we can look at the fact that Hindu weddings last for days and everyone is dancing and having fun without a drop of booze. And there are a billion Muslims in the world who don't drink and their lives are just as full of fun... Well, uh, appropriate caveats inserted here about uh, the Taliban not being fun. But uh, moderate Muslims who live lives of joy and fulfillment and don't drink are testament to the fact that there's nothing intrinsic about the consumption of alcohol that links it to a good life. Non-drinkers are just as happy as drinkers are. On the whole, they may be happier. That 
poses a bit of a conundrum to the person who drinks habitually and thinks that every time they go out, they wouldn't be having fun if they weren't drinking. And the reality is you probably wouldn't if you retain the mindset that the alcohol is giving you a gateway into having fun. As long as you keep thinking that way, you're going to be white-knuckling it, clinging on for dear life, trying to have fun in the absence of this thing that you're convinced gives you fun. But that's just an illusion. That's a hallucination. As soon as you're disabused of the connection between alcohol and fun, you can actually look at the experience of starting to get a buzz on with more objective eyes. There were a few eye-opening examples for me. I was uh, a host of HuffPost Live, living in New York, and I was hosting three to five 30-minute television segments every single day. A huge churn. Uh, It required enormous spontaneity, clarity of mind, uh, breadth of thought, uh, nimbleness and deftness and uh, sort of conversational repartee. And one day, and we never knew when during the day these my segments would be allocated. Uh, you know, the senior producers would allocate various hosts to various segments, and sometimes all of mine would be done by one in the afternoon, and other times they would be back-ended towards the end of the day. One day, mine ended at one in the afternoon, and I did what I liked to do in New York uh, without responsibility, without a mortgage, without kids, <laughs> living the life, living the dream, baby. Uh, which is I would go to uh, a nearby restaurant, a fancy restaurant, and one of the great uh, upsides of New York City is that a lot of the fancy restaurants that might cost $150 for dinner will have a set price uh, lunch menu to get the business crowd in, and it might be like 30 bucks. Maybe this isn't the case anymore, but it certainly was five years ago. And uh, so I'd go and I'd sit at the bar, I'd have a lovely fixed-price meal, and I'd have a few martinis. Now... If your experience of a martini is anywhere other than the United States, in fact, more specifically, anywhere other than New York City, then let me explain what a martini is, because you probably haven't had a real one. You've probably had some kind of, ooh, this is an espresso, let's get some espresso and coffee beers, let's get some blind, let's have a little, mm, this is two shots of alcohol and a little, mm, that's not a fucking martini. A martini... It's like a fifth of a bottle of vodka or gin shaken up with a lot of ice and basically nothing else in a large martini glass. It's a lot of booze. So you have a couple of martinis. You're probably talking about 10 standard drinks, uh, quite literally. And uh, so I'm uh, enjoying the dregs of my second delicious ice-cold gin martini and uh, eating my dessert when I get a text message from the executive producer, saying that one of my other host colleagues has fallen ill, and could I just pop back in to host another segment? And I do a mental scan of my mind and my physiology, and I think, what was a relaxed buzz three seconds ago is now a clammy panic. Now I can just notice as I try to focus my mind that my mind is impaired. And it's not impaired in a good way. It was impaired in a good way three seconds ago when I had nothing to do and all I wanted was to drop a veil of fog over life and kind of buzz along in a 
pleasant zombified stage. But the moment something happened where I needed clarity, where something was demanded of me, I noticed what was really going on. Although maybe it's not fair to say that it's what really was going on, because all of this, my claim is, is a subjective interpretation of what's really going on. All that's really happening is that I'm slightly anaesthetized, disinhibited, clumsy, and clammy. All of the rest, all of the other interpretations about the relaxation, the buzz, the feeling of, of goodwill, the, the feeling of uh, life being a little lighter to the touch than it was before, all of that is an interpretation, my claim is, that we superimpose onto the fundamental biological, biochemical reality of drunkenness. Now, I'm using drunkenness loosely. I was not staggering around drunk. I just mean the, the feeling of the effect of alcohol to some degree more than just mild, mild, mild lightheadedness. So all of a sudden, the cognitive context for the buzz flips from being a state of relaxation after work to a state of heightened preparation for something that's about to be demanded of me. And I notice this is not a good feeling at all. Now that I'm actually trying to demand something of myself, all that this is is sweatiness, heart racing, clamminess, dry mouth, Inability, incapacity. I didn't do the segment. I said I had other obligations, and thank God I didn't. But that was one moment where I realized, okay, I'm raised in a culture whose behaviors are contingent. I could just as easily have been born in a parallel universe in which everyone uses cannabis all the time, or everyone uses ketamine all the time, or everyone uses MDMA all the time, or everyone microdoses with psilocybin all the time. And if you're in Silicon Valley, maybe the latter does apply to you. Instead, or I could have been born in one of the many parts of the world where booze is either outlawed or heavily frowned upon. Instead, I was born into a culture where the norm is that to celebrate, to wind down, to cope, you drink. So, of course, there's this connection between this substance and those contexts. When you... So, anyway, how then let's just get to the question of how you actually go about quitting. I had... I went to a... I remember going to an AA meeting out of curiosity because one of my colleagues at HuffPost Live was sober and she went to meetings every week. So I joined her to a few. I thought this is interesting just to check out. And the sorrow, the desperation, the self-flagellation, I found it so unseemly. It didn't resonate with me. I'm powerless over alcohol. This thing controls me. I'm allergic to alcohol. I, I ingest it, and I'm a uniquely broken type of human being for whom it grabs me and I can only surrender to God, to the higher power of the universe, and acknowledge my worthlessness in the face of this substance, and only through going through the steps of repentance will I be able to find my own truth. Now, if 12 steps worked for you, great. It works for some people. For a lot of people, that message doesn't resonate, and it didn't resonate with me. What resonated with me was discovering this other organization Alan Carr, which said, there is no big issue here. What you're doing is you've been tricked. You've been tricked by advertising. You've been tricked by culture. 
into beginning to imbibe something in smallish doses and experimenting with it. When you first tried it, it probably didn't taste very nice. In fact, think back to your first drinks. It almost certainly didn't. The head spin and the buzz probably felt weird, but not initially fabulous. What you did was you got addicted to a drug that's addictive, alcohol is, and you started to associate it with a whole bunch of things in your life. Now, again, if you drink one glass of champagne a month, this doesn't apply to you. If you drink five drinks a day, it definitely applies to you. To my friends who drink, you know, who say, oh, I don't drink during the week, but, you know, maybe I have three or four drinks on a Friday or Saturday night, does it apply to you? Probably. I mean, only you can answer that, but probably. If you are imbibing any other addictive substance with that frequency, then clinically you would probably be said to be somewhat dependent on that thing. It's also worth noticing that things that you don't have a problematic relationship with, you don't tend to talk about in terms of like, oh, I don't do them during the week. You know, nobody says, ah, I I don't, you know, I don't, I don't eat broccoli during the week. I just treat myself to broccoli on a Friday and Saturday night. Why don't we say that? I mean, we don't say it firstly because broccoli is not bad for us, but you would, even if it were bad for us, you wouldn't say that because there's no addictive property to broccoli and you don't have to feel proud of not doing broccoli and there's no conflict within yourself about doing broccoli. Doing broccoli. I want a bumper sticker that says, I do broccoli. You know what I mean? You hear a lot of people saying like, I don't have a problem with alcohol. You know, I don't even touch it during the week. Well, okay, good for you. La-di-da. But in saying that, you're sort of confessing that you do somewhat have a problem with alcohol because you're being drawn to it and you're withstanding the temptation, the urge. The urge is not intrinsic to the alcohol. The urge is intrinsic to the fact that you are a habitual imbiber of alcohol and therefore you have some kind of problematic, addictive relationship to it. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that problematic, addictive relationship. I'm just saying it's a, it's a complicated, intertwined interplay between your biochemistry and this substance that you're constantly taking, which we don't tend to interrogate. It's not a freely chosen choice. It's a dance with a substance that has its tendrils into your psyche and in your biology. And if you can manage that and you re- you're genuinely just drinking your, you know, three drinks once or twice a week and that works for you, then great. But I'd also wonder whether or not you've ever tried if life works for you without those things as well. And maybe it would if you changed your way of thinking about it. See, we tend to think when it comes to substances that are addictive that we are in a struggle with ourselves. 